pray for a moment. Father, we're so grateful to you for all your kindness to us. All of your goodness, your tender mercies that are new each morning. And we thank you for your love for us. It's everlasting. And it's reliable. We're so grateful to you for it. And thank you for your presence here with us tonight. We ask that the Holy Spirit would give us understanding of your word tonight, that it would come alive to us, that we would encounter Christ himself as we gather around his word. In Jesus' name. We're going to talk about some things that I can't help but imagine you're already familiar with, but I want to remind you something of Peter uh, that Peter wrote in his second epistle, chapter 1, verse 12. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of a reminder. That's important, isn't it? Have you, have you ever heard a message that you were entirely familiar with its subject matter and really with its point, but simply hearing it stirred something up in you and you discovered a new devotion to that truth, um, uh, freshly inspired to walk that out in your own life. I think perhaps that's what we'll see tonight. I'm teaching on why prayer. Um, I think if we can isolate prayer's objectives, it's purposes, there are more than one, then we will be better able to apply prayer to our lives and to our circumstances. Uh, what is prayer? Well, Jesus expressed it rather simply in John the 14th chapter. Turn there with me, if you will. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there should be one in the seat in front of you. Uh, John the 14th chapter. Beginning with verse 12, I'll be reading from the NASB. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater work than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me, in, if you ask me anything, in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, of course, he's addressing the disciples uh, regarding this matter of prayer in exceptionally personal terms because he has just announced to them again that he's leaving. And a few verses later, in fact, in verse 16, he said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, comforter, that he may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you alone. I will come to you. And these extraordinarily comforting words to Jesus, I'm sure, were meaningful to his disciples. They had spent the last three years traveling with Jesus, living with Jesus. 
they, they enjoyed together with Jesus some extraordinary events, uh, exceptional miracles, and then also those uh, moments during which uh, people were incited against him and, and, and the, the Pharisees and Sadducees were plotting against him. And he has just announced to them, I'm leaving. And so he's quick to say, but I am not going to leave you alone. A few verses earlier, he had explained that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And now he is introducing the ministry of the Holy Spirit, uh, this comforter who will come, who is essentially, uh, uh, when we have a... Uh, an encounter with the Holy Spirit, we're having a Jesus encounter. That's a Jesus experience. Just as the Father came to us in the person of the Son, Jesus is coming to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. He says, I will not leave you alone. I will come to you. But he explains to them, I'm still going to be present with you and available to answer your prayers. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will do it. And fundamentally, that's what prayer is. It's an appeal to God regarding our lives. But it's something more. But that, that's important, and I think it's an important place to begin. Uh, let's go back a few chapters to John, the 10th uh, chapter. However, I think we should note that Jesus, in that instance, he is addressing his disciples. He's addressing his Jewish disciples. These were uh, um, men of the covenant. They were Israelis. These were God's covenant people. And his promises at that time were restricted to whom? To the Jews. Now, occasionally... You'll recall, he, and we'll look at one such instance in a moment, instance rather, in a moment, but he did uh, minister to the Gentiles. However, his, um, his mission, if you will, was to the Jewish nation and to, uh, uh, as its promised Messiah, fulfill the promises made to the Jewish people, and then by extension to the world. In John, the 10th chapter, uh, beginning with verse 10, Jesus explained that the thief comes only to steal and kill and to destroy. He's referring here to the religious leaders who, who seem not really to care a great deal about the welfare of the Jewish people. They cared far more about their own power and prestige. I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock 
with one shepherd. And he is, of course, referring uh, to the Gentiles who were strangers to the covenant of promises. They were not members of the commonwealth of Israel. Paul addresses this in uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 2. Having a sword drill. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2. Paul explores this at length. Uh, let's begin, though, with verse 4. Familiar to us all, I'm sure. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And not that of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good work, which God has prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the circumcision which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was the state of all of those outside of Israel. We had no covenant which bound us to God or bound God to us. We were strangers to those covenants, and consequently we were without hope in this world but now in Christ Jesus you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two, Gentile and Jew, into one new man, thus establishing peace. Jesus resolved this uh, covenant problem for us. So just as the uh, disciples could rest in this wonderful promise that Jesus had made regarding prayer, if you ask anything in my name, the Father will give it you we too enjoy access to that simple promise and that simple expression of prayer's purpose. Uh, Matthew uh, 15, how eager is God to answer our prayers? Well, he reached outside of the covenant on this occasion because there was a woman who responded to him in faith. Being Jewish was was uh, was not special in and of itself. You'll recall that Jesus said, don't say I'm Abraham's son because God is able to raise up of these stones sons. It was their proximity to the covenant. It was their inclusion in the covenant that made them special. It wasn't their their nationality, their ethnicity, it was their connection to the covenant. What, what was attributed 
to Abraham? Or, or rather, why was, why was um, uh, Abraham called righteous? Why was righteousness rather attributed to Abraham? It was faith. It was faith and faith alone. This uh, Syrophoenician woman, verse 21, Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon and a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out saying, now she's a Gentile, correct? What does she say? Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. Now what's so significant about that? And Jesus had just left a group of religious leaders who utterly rejected him and his claims uh, as the Messiah. And yet this Gentile woman recognizes him in his messianic role. She's announced that he's the son of David. On some level, she was familiar, apparently, with the promises. She, she has um, uh, appealed to Christ on the basis of his messianic name. Son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed, but he did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and implored him, saying, send her away because she keeps shouting at us. So she's crying out. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What is he saying? My mission, first and foremost, is to God's covenant people. I am the Messiah. But she came and began to what? Bow down before him. What is she? She is recognizing his lordship. In recognizing his lordship, she is expressing what? Faith. She came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, if you're not familiar with, uh, with that language, then it may sound as if Jesus is insulting, insulting her. He's calling her a dog. What is he doing? He's, he's explained, I am sent first to the house of Israel. Now, I'm a father. I have children. And I have uh, two dogs, a terrier mix and a boxer with inexhaustible supplies of energy. Um, now, would it be appropriate for me to take food from my children? Of course, they're adults now, but if I were to remove food from the table and give it to the dog before they've been filled and satisfied? No. It's certainly not uncommon to feed your, your uh, pets, your dogs, food scraps. And in that day, that's probably how house pets were most commonly fed. They didn't go to the store and buy a bag of dog feed or cans of dog food they fed them what was left over from their meals so Jesus is not insulting the woman he's saying I can't take what is rightfully um, uh, the Jews and give it to you a Gentile before I first give it to them she said yes Lord but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. Now, he's not rewarding her for her rhetorical skills. He didn't go, touche, 
What a fabulous retort. You know what? That, I, I admire her spunk. I'm going to go ahead and do a miracle for her. It wasn't anything like that. She was persisting in her faith. She was appealing to him as Lord. She was appealing to him as Messiah. So she was expressing steadfast faith in him. And faith always was, is, and always will be the gateway to uh, righteousness, to communion with God. She passed through that gate. Jesus rewarded her faith with a miracle. I think that's a big deal, don't you? Uh, and so let, let's look real quickly at Colossians 2.8 then. So certainly covenant is, is, a, is no small matter. But we've now been included in this covenant, haven't we? Jesus having abolished the wall that separated us and made of two one people. And we read in Colossians 2, let's, um, let's begin with verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority, and in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through what? Faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him having forgiven all of our transgressions. Now, this is, a, this is an extraordinary um, statement that Paul has made. But the essence of it is we enjoy um, full access to the covenants of promise. We enjoy full access to God. There is no longer any separation. God is our Father. We are His children. And so... He begins uh, chapter 3, verse 1, by saying, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. So we're no longer strangers to the covenants of promise. We are no longer without hope in the world. We have been, of course, we've been saved. We've been born again. We are now the people of God. We, we uh, died with Christ, we've been raised up with Christ, and we've been seated with Christ in heavenly places. And so now we are encouraged to view ourselves, others, and life itself from this new perspective, which is no longer earthbound. We're invited to look at ourselves, others, and life itself from God's perspective. Now, that's extraordinary. That's liberating. And God is asking you and I to approach prayer on that basis. So let's look at Matthew chapter 6. Jesus talks about prayer here. He provides 
some important insight into prayer. His disciples have asked him, please teach us how to pray. And he begins, pray then in this way, verse 9. Our Father who is in heaven. Now, the Greek word here is closely associated with the Aramaic word translated daddy, which would be our English equivalent. So it's a very personal title. So he is encouraging us to approach God on that basis, that he is our father, our loving, doting, caring father who yearns to do good for us. Jesus said, ask and it will be given you. Why? That your joy may be full. So Jesus is urging us to appeal to God as our Father. This is an intensely intimate and personal relationship. Hallowed be your name. And this is important. He's urging us to remember he is, he is your Father. Daddy, if you will. But He is in heaven. He is above all. And He is over all. And hallowed kept holy, is his name. He's my daddy, but he's God over all. I'm appealing to the ultimate and absolute ruler of all that is. Your kingdom come. Now what sort of sentence is that? Is that declarative? It is, isn't it? Your kingdom come. Now Jesus, remember, is instructing us to pray after this manner. Your kingdom come. He's implying agency now in prayer. That we are acting on God's behalf in the earth, because he's where? In heaven, to extend the rule and the reign of God here on the earth. You remember when Jesus said, look, if I cast out demons by the, uh, by the power of God, the kingdom of God has come. So now he's urging us, when we pray, to understand that prayer is a catalyst for unleashing the authority and power of God into the earth, into our lives, into our circumstances, into the lives and circumstances of others. When uh, Peter was approaching the gate called Beautiful at the Hour of Prayer, I think in Acts 3, remember the um, beggar was there asking alms. And Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I'm giving to you. What was it that Peter had that he gave to this man? Healing grace, healing virtue, power. There was no uncertainty in that declaration. I don't have silver and gold to give you right now, but what I do have is the I have the power of God. I enjoy ready access to it 
And that I'm giving to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise and walk. And he grasped him by the hand and lifted him up. This is the nature of prayer as Jesus is describing it. Kingdom come. When we pray, we are, we are appealing to God our Father. To Daddy, if you will. Who is, who is God, Lord, ruler over all that is. And we are declaring kingdom, kingdom of God, come. Invade this circumstance. Invade this situation. Invade my life. Invade that life. Invade that circumstance. Kingdom, come. Your will be done. There is enormous power in knowing the will of God. John wrote, this is the confidence we have in him. If we ask anything according to his will, we know that he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, we know that we have the petitions we desire of him. No so praying is effective praying. And Jesus is offering uh, an invitation into that sort of prayer. We, when we uh, locate a promise, the promises of God are in Him. Yes, Paul wrote, and in Him, Amen. So be it, Lord. The promises of God were given to us for us. They are ours to lay claim to. In prayer. Now, why doesn't God just do this? Well, let me finish this. Your kingdom come, your will be done where? On earth. That's where we are. That's where those in need are. That's where Satan is at work. On earth as it is in heaven. Now, why, why doesn't God simply do it for us? Jesus said, after all, before you ask, the Father knows what you have need of. Now, I remember hearing a, a minister once saying, well, I think he does so because it's just so cute to hear us ask. Like when a child asks Daddy for something, would, would you ask me that again because it's so cute? That's a dreadful, dreadful answer. You are a free moral agent. God gave humanity an extraordinary gift which can either serve uh, our best interest and God's purpose in us or uh, work to our detriment. He gave us the gift of autonomy. The right to choose between life and death, blessing and cursing. That choice is our own. And he cannot infringe upon that autonomy. If he does in any fashion, that autonomy is lost. And we cease to be this extraordinarily unique uh, order of created being. God created us for fellowship with himself. To love him and to be loved by him. Well, is love love? If it's on any level coerced, 
in order for me to love you, I have to be able to choose to love you without manipulation. Otherwise, I'm an automaton. I'm just a robot. God created you and I for fellowship with Himself. We love Him freely or we reject Him freely. Everything that God wishes to do for us requires you and I to, at some level, get into agreement with it and accept it by faith. God's not willing that any should perish, Peter wrote. And yet we know there will be those uh, who will perish, who will spend eternity in hell rather than in the presence of God. By virtue of their choice, not God. There, I, I want to ask you just to, to consider something. If something as consequential as your eternal destiny is left entirely uh, in your hands, th that is, it's a matter of your choosing, is there anything less than that that God will intervene in? How many needs go unmet in our lives or in the lives of those God is calling us into as, as uh, ministers to, to bring life to them? Go unmet because we have failed to pray. James said simply, you have not because you ask not. I'm convinced we haven't reckoned adequately with the reality of evil. And a lot of people, I, I understand, struggle with the reality of evil and the notion of a good, all-powerful God. The two seem irreconcilable. If he's all good, all-loving, and all-powerful, how can evil exist? Well, apparently, out of all the possible worlds that could exist, God created one in which evil was necessary if choice, real choice, real autonomy were to exist. You can't choose to do good if evil isn't present as a choice. You can't choose to love, truly love, unless you can choose to reject. Jesus explained, you know, there was a question, why, why, why is there evil? And Jesus addresses it. Let's, um, let's look at Matthew, the 13th chapter. Um, let's begin with verse 24. Jesus presented another parable of them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? Verse 28, he said to them, I want you to say this aloud with me if you have a Bible. An enemy has done this. 
That's why evil exists in the world. That's why there's pain. That's why there's suffering. The enemy has done this. Verse, uh, he explains this forthrightly in verse 39 as, as he's explaining to his disciples the meaning of the parable. Verse 39, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil and the harvest is the end of the age. And so Jesus is suggesting that the solution to evil when it will be ultimately and eternally dealt with is an eschatological matter. It's going to be wrapped up at the end of the age. He will resolve it utterly and eternally. But until then, it is a reality that we have to contend with. And so we don't want to attribute to God those works that are, in fact, his enemies, our enemies, the adversary Satan, who is, above all else, a liar. Matthew, the 8th chapter, back just a few pages, verse 29 Then he touched their eyes. That, oh, excuse me, wrong, wrong chapter. I was going to read that with real gusto. <laughs> um, verse 28, when he came to the other side of the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And they cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, son of God? Now, who's crying out now? The demons are crying out. Remember, there's a legion. So many, uh, they, they are called legion, that inhabit these men. And they cry out to Jesus something curious. What, what do they say? What business do we have with each other, son of God? We're like oil and water. We do not mix. What are you doing here? And, and then they say something further that's intriguing. Have you come here to torment us before the time? Satan and his cohorts are well aware that um, damnation awaits them, that final judgment awaits them. So again, there is an eschatological resolution. And in the end of time, God will utterly and eternally dispose of evil. In the here and now, however, we have to contend with that reality. But there's, there's good news. There's very good news. Um, yes, in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul refers to Satan as the God of this world. When Satan tempted Jesus, you'll recall in, in uh, Luke, uh, 4 verse 6 he said hey I'll give you the what the kingdoms of this world they were his to give when did that happen by the way this is beyond the scope of tonight's message but when did that happen when did he acquire authority over the earth and its work in the fall. Remember Paul wrote in I think Romans 6. To whomever ye yield your members the same as your Lord. In the fall. All of this wonderful authority that had been granted to the first man and the first woman was forfeited. At that instant Satan became the dark overlord of this world. And um, things have never been the same since have they? 
First uh, John three eight though we we read something in, deeply encouraging and meaningful to us with regard to prayer in First John three verse eight. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the work of the devil. And then Hebrews 2.14, he announces, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, that is us, he himself, Jesus, likewise also partook of the same. He clothed himself in flesh, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. That's good to know going into prayer, isn't it? Jesus has rendered him to his death, burial, and resurrection through that great victory he has rendered Satan powerless in the lives of those who recognize the extraordinary privilege that is theirs in Christ and the authority and power that resides with them through that name. Do you remember uh, when uh, Peter uh, had ministered healing to that man, lifted him up, the man was leaping and shouting and praising God. And it created quite a stir in the temple. And they wanted answers as to how this had happened. How did Peter explain it? It wasn't us. It was the name and faith in the name that has made this man whole. When we enter prayer, we're appealing. We're not appealing to a remote um, deity who is indifferent to our needs or our desires. When we are praying for others, we're not appealing to a disinterested and indifferent deity. We are appealing to, we are talking to our Father who loves us and yearns to do good for us. We're not pleading our case. Jesus has already pled our case. These covenants are nothing more than expressions of God's extraordinary love for us. Paul said simply, look, he's already given you the greatest gift. Will he not, will he not also essentially administer to these, these uh, less critical, less consequential needs that you have? It's his desire to give to us the kingdom. He, he yearns to do that. And when we understand that prayer exists, yes, as an appeal to our uh, loving Father, because, or I should say rather, it exists as an invitation 
He's poised for action. He's ready to um, move on our behalf. And our prayers exist as an invitation to him. As autonomous preachers, we're saying, God, show forth your love in my life. But when we are addressing uh, some of these same issues, it's not enough to simply open the door to God. We have to shut the door to the devil. And prayer achieves both of those objectives. It extends an invitation to God who's, who is uh, not simply willing but eager to work in our lives. And it closes the door to the devil, whether in our own lives or in the lives of those for whom we are praying. It is closing the door to him, this troublemaker, uh, and allowing the kingdom of God to come into that circumstance so that the will of God might be done here on the earth just as it is in heaven. Well, that's just a brief word I wanted to share with you. I felt um, compelled over the last couple of days to, again, I know there's nothing uh, groundbreaking in there, but... It's what I felt um, compelled to share with you. Um, may I pray with you real quickly? And then I guess um, Don will take his position. Up, right? Father, we are so grateful to you. Um, it's, it's so heartening and so comforting to know that you love us and are standing by, ready to act on our behalf. help this truth to come alive for us so that we are more uh, apt, Lord, we are quicker uh, to respond in prayer with complete trust in you uh, when we encounter those with needs in their lives or we encounter need in our own life. Make this truth come alive, we pray, in our heart, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit. And uh, give us understanding and truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.